Why does history matter? What's the point in keeping track of everything that's happened before? How does history influence the present and future? The network state by Balaji Srinivasan makes the case that history is crucial because history is how you win the argument. Winning arguments need more than pure logic alone. You need facts, so you need history. How history determines legality, how history determines morality, how history is how you develop compelling media, how history is the true value of cryptocurrency, and how history tells you who's in charge. We explore how new network states should treat or teach their history, and whether their on-chain records make it impossible to lie. We also dive into what history tells us about how radical truth, honesty, and transparency would work at scale using examples from companies doing it today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about why history is crucial. Pretty exciting for this episode. Raf, how do you feel? Oh, I'm, I'm very excited. You know I'm a big uh, history buff, so... This is all up in your jam. This um, is mostly my jam. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually uh, part of I believe, chapter two. Let me go ahead and sharing that for everyone to see here. So this is on uh, history as trajectory. Last episode, we covered the prologue. And in this episode, we're going to be covering the next steps. So we covered all of this, and now we're here. Why history is crucial. So um, there's a couple main points that Balaji makes here. Um, the first one is history is how you win the argument. You simply can't win an argument against such people on pure logic alone. You need facts, so you need history. Uh, and so I think this is just pretty straightforward. Uh, I don't know if, Raf, you have anything else to add to that. Um, but to me, it's just saying, you know, this is a point of objective truth that we can point to as an example of what happened, and therefore we can use it um, to determine what is true moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess um, for me, the it, it's always a question of what is that mechanism uh, which decides what is the truth and, and is the mechanism for uncovering the truth also working the way that it should? Um, and uh, how much oversight that has, you know, like how much is the argument you're trying to make playing on what that history actually is about and how much is the history influencing the argument? Because actually, I don't think those things are, are you know, it's not like there's a, a hard wall between the two of them. But uh, I think we get into that into the, uh, I mean, I, I think right now he's just establishing that there's a relationship between these two things. Um, and so I think that's fair. And, and we get into that later in the document anyway. Okay, cool. Uh, so the next one is that history determines legality. Uh, the reason is that behind every FDA, there is a thalidomide, just as behind every TSA, there is a 9-11, and behind every Sarbanes-Oxley, there is an Enron. And so regulation is dull, but the incidents that lead to regulation are anything but dull. Uh, and so, you know, I think this just illustrates how uh, without the foresight uh, that history provides, these massive incidents that are hugely negative for the world uh, would just continue happening. Um, and so we need these markers to tell us, hey, there's a flaw in the system. 
and you need to fix it or change the system so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, exactly. For me, this is this is one of the strongest points here. And not only because I find that there's people who like history also actually end up liking uh, law a lot. Um, at least that's what I found from my, my personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it also is that like law is built in a way, especially if the law is uh, not strictly constitutional, but also um, based on like what's uh, previously come out. Um, then that tradition of how have we um, cut through case laws, like basically case law, how have we cut um, one way in the past and how does that affect the law going forward? I mean, that is history, right? That's that's the way that history evolves. That's the way a nation's law evolves. And so the idea that we should look at history because it determines laws is absolutely correct. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And, and the cases he brings out are those extreme cases that we, we know of in, in recent times. Um, but it would be true even from uh, like a nation building or an empire building from 200 years ago, or even I, I, I imagine even thousands of years ago, if we're thinking of like uh, Hammurabi's code, um, an eye for an eye and so on, you know, what happened in their history that, you know, it got to that point. <laughs> Yeah. And, and if you know that, then you understand the law, basically. And so I think those two things go hand in hand. And it's really cool that um, that, that is one of the first arguments that we have for why should, we should care when you're trying to set up your own nation, which Love is you it. have to see whatever people have gone through to know to know what uh, what's best. And why things are set up the way that they're, that they're set up, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly okay. if you want to change them, of course. Right, exactly. Uh, so next is history determines morality. And, you know, in summary here, we have Uh, the tales of the distant past, fictionalized or not, uh, that describe how you humans once behaved and how they should have behaved. Uh, There's a moral to these stories, right? So, I mean, oldest example uh, would be how the earliest humans would tell stories to each other, um, either as a warning or as entertainment or as whatever, but there's always some value judgment that's being made by the person listening to determine was this good was this bad uh and how should i organize that in my moral compass um moving forward right and then we see obviously things like the bible and the quran and the torah and um how they are the most famous examples of you know sharing these moralistic stories uh that have these lessons to teach us how to behave definitely i think those texts themselves also don't uh position themselves as strictly historical texts. I don't think anybody makes that argument. Um, but And yet it's so interesting how, you know, history is obviously a part of establishing the, that ethical doctrine, as, as you said. Um, and I guess in terms, even if you take the other extreme, so like here's religion on one side, the other extreme is like pure entertainment. <clears throat> Let's take, for example, the Marvel movies. Uh, even though I think some people um, <laughs> see that as in and of itself also a religion. But but there you go. Like there is a cast of characters. You know, it's, yeah, maybe the moral lesson is like good versus evil. And you have certain nuances within there where you have to make a choice. Uh, usually it's to save a certain amount of human life, although there does seem to be a lot of casualties um, mm-hmm. in those films regardless. But um, what it gets accepted as entertainment uh, is, as you said, like, there is an underlying value that connects the viewer to the story that's happening on the screen. 
well, the, when someone watches a movie, it's very easy to imagine that you're that character, or at least you're living with that character in that story. And, and therefore, you're sort of offloading some kind of own personal pressure and putting it on the screen and living that story and sort of going through those motions. And that would only work if you felt like that person represented you uh, uh, ethically as well. Um, otherwise, their story doesn't really matter and and you would totally. probably disconnect from that story. Right. But it's kind of interesting in that, you know, there are so many compelling anti-heroes and that seems to be a more and more popular genre. Um, and so it kind of, you know, makes you wonder with the superhero movies, you know, people, I think, originally were so compelled by them because they were just like these larger than life, you know, infallible uh, figures or the representations of like the best sides of human nature. But more and more, we're seeing these antagonists become popular and they're showing flaws that are relatable, right? And so people connect with the story a lot more um, and see themselves like you're talking about in the story and, and that makes them more invested. Uh, but it also is just kind of sharing truth, right? And sharing uh, morality as a part of that, because, you know, the reasons why, you know, I had to think of some good examples, but um, why people are fascinated by like Heisenberg in Breaking Bad, um, or by Khaleesi in Game of Thrones, um, is because, you know, they, um, they're captivating, uh, in some ways, they throw you off, right? And they're, they they almost allow you, it's kind of interesting, I'm just making these dots now, but they allow you to judge them uh, and to tell yourself like, oh, well, I wouldn't have acted that way, right? Um, and mm -hmm. so it's, again, just using that uh, that moral compass and feeling like, you know, you're you're making some kind of value judgment on them and deciding in your head or compartmentalizing, is this good behavior, is this bad behavior? Um, you know, should I do more of it? Should I do less of it? Yeah, no, I think you're you're spot on there. Uh, I would add that the the idea of an anti-hero I don't think is new. I think it's probably even I, I don't know if it's classical, but you have uh, you, you may even have anti-heroes in the Bible or in biblical um, terms. If I'm I don't have an uh, example off the top of my head. But what the anti-hero or, 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 I mean, strictly speaking, I'm not sure if it's an anti-hero, but someone who's um, on that moral gray area or even on the coming from the other side of uh, morality, there, there's still a journey there. So like you said, you can, you can it, you're sophisticated, the watcher should be sophisticated enough, the viewer should be sophisticated enough that they can like say, oh yeah, you know, like that's a mere argument and I'm taking this position. So you can still be as long as you know what your position is and you care about your position either in opposition or with then you should still be able to be taken through those stories and i guess the greatest thing about breaking bad is is the story was awesome until the very end we were sort of like well you know how far will he go in this exactly yeah. absolute argument and and so there and there you go so again i mean we've jumped off a little bit off of um histories per se but um fictionalized not fictionalized you know it yeah you're you're seeing there there is a structure which is let's get how can we understand how can we connect the dots and um is are those dots are just the way that we're connecting dots because we have to connect dots to understand the story are those not already dictating the way that we should be thinking or or what we're thinking about is actually coming clear from connecting those dots 
that's um that in and of itself being a moral choice is uh, yeah i think you can you could probably make the argument for for all stories um totally and i don't know to what extent there are like i guess the thing is today it's very easy for us to be in our own culture bubble so you it, it's hard to know you know how far what what variations of of moralities are out there that are being captured in stories versus you know what hollywood is putting out and and you you can you know maybe it's a category of 16 different larger themes right just throwing a random number out there um but uh maybe what's interesting for a society is to well actually history has this morality that's being told and then it has an individual morality that isn't being told and that's not being captured in the stories and we want more of that or maybe there are moralities that over over time because we lose their history we also lose what they believed in and uh and what that made up so so that's also an interesting point um, i wanted to throw in there the okay, untold and, true stories basically right and there's definitely more to touch on there i'm sure we're going to get into it when we get to media but uh, the next point here is that political doctrines are based on history lessons too they're how the establishment justifies itself and i would add especially using the press which we're going to dive into some more but so this is why this is so important for you know just your average person on the day to day because these lessons these stories are being used by people in power to influence your perception of what is good and what is evil and how does your company or your company or your country uh, stack up on the moral scale of who's best and who's worst uh, and who's the enemy and who's the good right. Um, and form your opinion around them. And so one like really poignant example that I think a lot of Americans are not aware about um, that I recently became aware about is um, how the United States during the Korean War basically carpet bombed 70% of North Korea, like absolutely destroyed it. Um, and that's not something that you're taught in American school, obviously. Um, and it's obviously a massive tragedy. Um, and it's why North Koreans are so hostile towards Americans to this day, right? In their museums, it's painting this picture of remember the time, right, where the US Army came and literally destroyed the vast majority of our country. Um, and this is this is what they are using to then influence their country and their citizens to to hate the United States. Um, and the United States is using that history uh, to completely hide it and manipulate the perception of the average American citizen that we're the good guys, right? And we don't do any wrong. Um, and it's just so clear that it's much more complex than that. And there's so many different countries that have a very different story to tell. Um, and without full transparency, it's easy to see how each of these individual countries manipulate their their citizenry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a tragic example, um, and uh, just one of of many, particularly um, from the U.S. in the last uh, seventy years or so, mm -hmm. um, when you know when uh, you're dealing with a an enemy like the Soviet Union, I think there's a lot of things. The yeah, basically, when your opponent is is threatening for uh, nuclear annihilation, there's a lot 
eventually there's a lot of, you know, that can get swept under the carpet just to hold up against that kind of thing. Not that that's a justification, but um, just that I'm sure we're going to keep uncovering every day <laughs> worse and worse things as we've, as it's been doing. And, and there are people who are viewed as alternative or counter culture who like bring up those points, who have that information um, and shake up, you know, those moments, like, uh, like what we saw with the Vietnam War by the end of it. Um, so that, you know, that was a moment where history was playing out, you know, live because the facts were being fed live and it was uh, shaking the uh, preconceived notions or established narrative in the country, um, which is kind of interesting. But in any case, it's here, the, I guess the point really is that like, if, uh, if uh, politics, um, basically once you add politics into the mix, you're, you're, you're turning, you're instrumentalizing history and turning it into um, an instant, another institution, basically, that um, is feeding into whatever it is that you're building. Politics is an institutionalized sort of um, uh, power game. And oh, so yeah. history just becomes another thing, another institution that uh, that is supposed to mirror whatever is the goal or progression loop we'll say of of uh, of that political institution and same thing with media as you said is like who whoever's reporting on that the relationship with history the relationship with media relationship with pol uh, politics is how do you strengthen those institutions and so politics which is a game of, of power really wants that to be as clear and as a foundational for its power as possible and i think you know uh why this is so interesting and relatable uh and relevant to network states is because so looking at the example of like cuba uh a lot of cubans probably the vast majority feel like they've been through communism they tested it out they didn't like it and they don't want to go back to that ever again right uh at least today and so with the ussr um with maoism with uh leninism right we need to look at these different experiments of how did these countries choose to run? How did these political ideologies choose to um, mm. implement themselves in the society? And what were the results of that, right? This is an experiment, right? Leninism was definitely different than Stalinism, which is definitely different than Maoism, uh, but they're all rooted in communism. Um, and those are all different from, you know, Fidel Castro and Cuba, but these experiments had very dire results in many cases and so the us can use that as an as a as a case using history to say we're capitalistic right and it does all the time because look at communism and look at all these horrible things that happen right um instead of like okay just starting a new country from scratch right we've got three political ideologies that seem to be contenders uh capitalism socialism communism right and there's obviously way more than that but that's like the general uh three options and uh instead of the u.s saying well you know communism is so bad that's why we're capitalistic they could theoretically if they're thinking from first principles be like well here are the elements of capitalism that work really well here are the elements of socialism that work really well here are the elements of communism that work really well how do we come across a new system that brings whatever sorts of these uh, elements together uh, to come up with something really powerful. And this is exactly how China is currently doing it, right? So they found these are the aspects of communism that we really like, and I'm speaking as the Chinese government here, right? 
We can manipulate the people very easily, right? We can centralize all the information. Uh, we can choose to um, control all aspects of our citizens' lives by controlling all the apps that they use on a day-to-day, -day, right? So WeChat is responsible for like pretty much everything, their communication infrastructure, their payment infrastructure, right? They've got AI uh, surveillance everywhere. So they know exactly who you are, what, you, what you're doing, and this social uh, standing points getting deducted very much as, uh, as the Black Mirror uh, episodes have shown. Um, but they've adopted an economic capitalism that has allowed them to become an economic powerhouse and a rising world power, right? And so they're more pragmatic about their approach. And it has shown, at least in the, the success metrics of the world today, that if they adopt the right things economically, since that's how most countries' success is currently measured, um, they're at the top, right? They're rising and ain't nobody stopping them. So um, <laughs> <laughs> China's on the rise. Um, and that's why- uh, Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 a it's a very interesting shift where now people are are treating um, the political doctrines much more pragmatically than ideologically uh, as they were. And my assumption is there. And before uh, jumping into your thoughts here, Raf, that it's a prisoner's dilemma in which every country has to compete because if they don't compete someone else rises to power and now they don't have control or they don't have sovereignty or they don't have the safety that they're looking for, right? So everybody's stuck in this prisoner's dilemma. Like if we don't do this, then they're going to do it. And if they do that, we're not going to like it, right? Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, before jumping into that prisoner's dilemma, um, I, I, I mean, I think the argument between uh, communism, socialism or capitalism uh, is a good illustration of that. It, it really makes me think of what seems to be a central question in U.S. today, particularly in politics, is is democracy dot 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 like the best system? And I think this is something on a lot of people's right. minds, uh, even at the highest echelons of of our state uh, system in the U.S., but even abroad. Um, and and you look at uh, and I think the argument is is made basically with China. I mean, uh, which is just that look, China get things done, I guess. Um, and the way they do that is through <laughs> massive control um, measures and, and, uh, and like oppressive system, but not just like physically, but really mentally as well as someone who's lived there for eight years. Um, it's, a, it's an impressive, yeah, it's an impressive uh, vibe that you get when you're in China versus when you leave China. Um, and as much as I enjoyed my time there, but, um, yeah, the question today is like, well, okay, what are, how reliable is the democratic system? I think the U.S. has another issue, which is just like, how is the democratic system really democratic? Um, and that's something else. But uh, as you're building your own network state, um, to what extent do you give people power? And where does, the, how is that power justified? Um, that's really that's really interesting. And what what does it feed? Um, those conversations, you know, I'm sure you have them in political science classes, uh, but you don't really have them in a healthy and normal way uh, in in most countries on a public forum. Kind of that's a great places. that's a great point, right? Back to these moral judgments and how this affects your day to day life. 
if you're an American citizen and you're educated in the U.S. standard public education system, you're not taught uh, communism or socialism uh, in an unbiased way. It's extremely biased, right? It's not, hey, let's learn about how countries run and the pros and cons of each system. It's this is why capitalism is good. And this is why socialism and communism are bad. Um, and so it's very much influencing the way that you think. And just to touch on what you were saying earlier, right? Uh, I think what you're talking about is something that Balaji talks about a lot as well, which is it's American anarchy versus Chinese control, right? And so um, by anarchy, he's talking about the extreme of this um, liberal democracy, right? And Chinese control is more like Chinese imperialism and centralization of everything. Um, and so it's if you if you look on either end of that spectrum, they can both go into very negative um, uh, routes, but there is a lot of middle ground there that needs to be explored. And I think uh, actually even just looking at it as a spectrum is the problem, right? Instead of looking at it as kind of a basket where you're picking and choosing the things mm -hmm. that work for the societies within your country, or the groups or neighborhoods or buildings or families within your country that uh, it works for the best, right? Um, because ultimately, nobody, uh, in my opinion, nobody living in New York City, for example, uh, should have a say about how somebody in Texas is living their life. Um, <laughs> you know, if you if you want to affect the way that they're living their life there, um, live there, right? Be a part of that community. Um, but it doesn't make sense to impose your values uh, and your moral compass on another individual and think that yours are superior for whatever reason, um, especially if your life has no impact on theirs or you're not sharing the same resources or you're not living the same day-to-day -day, uh, lives. Um, so I don't know, like when it, when it comes to that, uh, the answer seems to be, let's find a system that... Uh, works for the the groups uh or not even i think that's actually uh another heuristic that i'm falling uh, into here because we're thinking about how does the government decide what's best instead of how does the citizen decide what's best for them right and how do we give them the most amount of options and then let let it be an idea meritocracy right where the best ideas win right and each person is still free to choose what they would prefer. And I think ultimately that's, if we extrapolate what the end of this network state road looks like, if it works, right, is people get to choose easily and frequently what they enjoy the most and what they want to be a part of the most and support that, but change when their mind changes, which is a good thing uh, because that keeps it competitive. That allows for more options to exist um, and for more people to have the choice to do uh, what they want and live the, the lives that they want. Yeah, I, I mean, it's always interesting when we fall into that, what could it look like? Um, because practically it's such a, there's so many factors at, uh, there, but um, if you're tuning yeah. in now, you can uh, listen to our first podcast, which explains a little bit more in detail what uh, the network state actually is. And, and how far this could go, which is really cool. <laughs> so I wanna, I wanna introduce the next quote here because this is very relevant to what we're just talking about here. So um, this right here, uh, 
So you get a totally different society if 99% of people allocate their limited moral memory to principles like hard work, good, meritocracy, good, envy, bad, charity, good, than if 99% of people have internalized nostrums like socialism, good, civility, bad, law enforcement, bad, looting, good, right? And so you can try to imagine a scenario where these two sets of moral values aren't in direct conflict, but empirically, those with the first set of moral values will favor an entrepreneurial society, and those with the second set of values will not, right? And so it just goes to show right here in this very like simple example, these values have such a dramatic impact in what is valued in that society. And that has an impact on what roles its citizens want to adopt. And that has an impact on its global power. And that has an impact on what that country gets to decide for itself and the rest of the world, if they're the ones setting the world order. So mm -hmm. these small, tiny moral judgments that we make on a day-to-day -day have a direct connection to who ends up in power and decides the trajectory of the global economic um, path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think here we're, I, well, I really like actually the first part of that quote, which is, um, so I'm going to bring that in and then we can uh, play off those two, um, mm -hmm. each other, which is the installation of these moral premises, uh, is a zero sum game. And what he means by that, as he explains is there's only so much room for so many moral lessons in one society. After some point you're, you just can't hit more ideas and hence the idea that you need to like, um, have this hierarchy of, of, uh, morality. And I, I think that that is the same just that for me is already actually kind of a moral statement but i wonder if that also doesn't underlie and the point i'm trying to get to is is that um yeah there it's a competitive space regardless so just as you will be competing on what are the moral lessons that you want to have obviously how those are set are really important but i find that if you believe that they are the moral lessons uh hierarchy is a competitive one then that also um, leads to thinking that nation states should also live uh, in competition, e even more in competition, which we touched on by saying, you know, like, if, 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 I think this is an idea in international relations that we would call like realism, which is that, you know, if you're not acting in the space, if you're not the big, the big guy sort of carrying the big stick, if you will, um, or uh, having enough to sort of back up, you know, your borders, your culture, your resources, your people, then you will be steamrolled by an, a neighbor or another force. And that's just, and that is the law of the game on some level. And, and obviously this was a founding principle of, um, of US law in the middle and uh, of the last century um, through to uh, Wellington Nixon. And then we had reactions to that being like, well, no, uh, the fact that there are states agreeing to exist in this one space means that there are rules that go beyond uh, pure uh, competition because we're having states that, you know, if it was purely competitive, shouldn't be existing. Maybe I think that's that's the extent of the counter argument. And, and then they say, well, there's there's both competition and space for hierarchy of rules, which we're trying to agree on. And um, and then you have rise for international institutions 
like the um, United Nations, which brings together these states, talking to each other instead of just steamrolling each other, right? Totally. Obviously, obviously you have situations where there is conflict. Um, so, you know, there are moments where that realism that like, I'm better than you, therefore I earn this, whatever argument you use that eventually leads to, you know, that's what the conflict is about. But um, but there is a lot of space before that, which is, okay, well, what are we talking about? What do you care about? And where can we exchange? Because actually, those two societies that you mentioned, the hard work good, meritocracy good versus the socialism good, civility bad, there may be an interest in having both of those players in the game because they might actually trade from each other in a way um, that is interesting. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I think the kind of the the fact that it is a zero-sum game, which I think should be analyzed and thought about more, right, is are these things really mutually exclusive and to what extent? Um, but that's what kind of sets it up as, um, as a conflict instead of as a collaboration um, mm -hmm. and, and a competition, right, which in some ways is good and in some ways is bad. All right, so moving on, we there, have... There, which, by the way, there has to be... There has to be some level of co collaboration for competition because at the end of the day if you're competing it it doesn't mean you're playing on the same playing field i.e you're agreeing to some level of rules um, yes if, if you're not agreeing to some rules so yeah so i don't know that's um and it's kind of like whatever they can get away with which actually transitions really nicely into this next point right um history is how you develop compelling media you can make up entirely fictional stories of course but even fiction frequently has some kind of historical antecedent. The Lord of the Rings drew on medieval Europe, spaghetti westerns pulled from the Wild West, Bond movies were inspired by the Cold War, and so on. And certainly the legitimating stories uh, for any political order will draw on history. So, you know, why, why does... Um, a story like Lord of the Rings or Bond movies uh have an impact because like we were saying earlier they're subliminally or not influencing your moral values and your moral values are influencing your political uh, affiliation your political affiliation is influencing the way your country is run and the way your country is run is influencing where it falls on the rung of power of global power so all of these things are tied together Anything to share on the on media, Raf? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, what's interesting is also just what are the symbols that are pulled out? Because there's a process, you know, like the Lord of the Rings, yes, drew on medieval Europe, but it draws on medieval Europe in many different ways. Um, there's a lot within medieval Europe that you can extract. What is it that the Lord of the Rings took from medieval Europe, which is still relevant to us today? That is the genius of the work. Mm. Um, and we and we see I mean, it's it's foundational it's universal in, in his approach because he has this lore this mythology which um, he also sort of derives from an oral tradition which is the Norse tradition um, and then he sets it in a land which resembles the one that he you know that he's dealing with that he's familiar to be clear, with we're, has... we're talking about the author right Tolkien yes Tolkien yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, whether it's that author or any other author in the process of creation, whatever they're influenced by within the history, it's still a process of finding out what are those symbols. So, for example, in the Lord of the Rings, choosing to base it off 
the mythology off of the oral tradition of uh, Norse or or Viking mythology, which we have today, thanks to um, the uh, Icelandic capturing of that oral tradition through a Snorl Snorlson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the funniest name. Yeah, um, it's the best name. If in case you've never heard that name, you should you should look up that. Um, uh, just it's the prose Eda, and and that's the foundation. And that's sort of like the artifact that the Lord of the Rings is um, higher mythology is um, is referencing, which he then uses for, you know, the rest of the world building. Um, I think that's a really impressive. important point, right? Because it's it's um, kind of like saying and something that James Altiter has talked about in the past, uh, there isn't there's very rarely new ideas. Um, so I can add one more here, right, which is Star Wars pulls from Taoism, pulls from the hero <laughs> arc, right? Pulls from space uh, and combines mm -hmm. those ideas into something new and compelling, but the moral lessons, right? The arc of the hero. Uh, and I, I believe there's a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces uh, by Joseph Campbell, which dives mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. how this arc has been used time and time and time again in media to influence uh, people. Uh, and with this very compelling arc of a hero, right, that goes through some challenge, overcomes the challenge and grows as a result. It's a, it's a story as old as time um, and adding all these other elements to it. Right. So um, with, with Star Wars and Taoism, that's literally injecting a philosophy into media, which informs the moral values. Right. Um, and so. Um, you see this with um, a lot of like uh, martial arts movies, right? That have such a, a, a strong emphasis on discipline, philosophy, um, and karate you know, kid, karate kid, exactly, right? Um, and so we we can see how media is pulling from these ideologies, and the ideologies have been around for thousands of years in many cases. So it's not like much has changed there, right? If it's Stoicism, Taoism, uh, maybe even like capitalistic ideologies from early on, right? Of trade and and um, religion and and, and other and like religion. more organized religions from Judaism through to uh, Catholicism, massively so, this, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So a lot of I, influence I, in media. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, I I was just gonna say the 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 question you have on like for example the hero with a thousand faces is is why is it that that narrative of an individual who is supposed to resemble us overcoming a challenge is how how is it or why is that that's so foundational or fundamental to to the way we relate to things and, and, and the stories that we enjoy um so, what is it about humanity here that needs to like have this story that we're always sort of being able to or should be pushed to or want to hear stories i think the main point here is actually we actually want to hear we want to see stories where people overcome challenges the flip side is when we're watching those movies we're literally not overcoming a challenge <laughs> which so it has a i think it could have the reverse psychological effect and i think i think we see that a lot um today also just with in terms of the uh um the influencer content that you see on um in social media that you can focus on other people's lifestyles while not actually going through your own life in any meaningful way just as we could see james bond going to all these incredible places doing these like like uh amazing things and therefore you know your reaction to that is like oh well great you know that's happened i felt that and now i feel inspired um to what extent that changes your life i don't know but it does play on a point 
where it's like, ah, yeah, that's the world that I want to be in. Right. Totally. Exactly. And I think that's, that's ultimately what matters most, right? Because um, that's, what's going to influence your political affiliation, which is what's linked to all those other things. Right. Um, So it's really interesting um, thinking about it just a little bit deeper. um, You know, why are challenges so important or why do we love seeing people overcome those challenges? Dan Ariely, one of these social psychologists at Duke speaks about this a lot. Um, And from what I remember, the main reason that people feel fulfilled, right, which is a more profound, deep form of happiness um, is from overcoming challenges, right? Overcoming the things that they thought were very difficult, right? And just as humans, right, we Uh, if we're going back to Maslow's hierarchy, right, that need for fulfillment, that need for meaning, those are at the very top of the pyramid. Um, And so if all the other needs are taken care of, the first thing that we as humans want to focus on is, do we have that meaning? Do we have that fulfillment? And even just watching people overcome challenges gives us, like you said, that dopamine hit of inspiration, like, oh, I got a little sense of uh, meaning and fulfillment from that, but it's short-lasted. Um, actually going through those challenges and overcoming them provides that feeling that's much more lasting. Uh, another you know, idea that's explored extensively in Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, such a good book. Right. So you know, it, these are all fundamental human needs, and they all are tied to um, why this media is so compelling for us and how governments or political parties or any influencer uses them to manipulate us in ways or as, mm-hmm. or as propaganda. Yeah. When we look at history, we want some of those stories because those in- stories help shape, you know, how we should be acting, which we, we should be striving for. We should not be overwhelmed by those stories. We shouldn't live in that world because obviously we live in this world and hopefully, you know, the, the state or society that you're living in is helping you to achieve what you're supposed to do. And I guess that's what's put into question with the network state. Absolutely. Um, All right. And the next point we have here is that history is the true value of cryptocurrency. Right. So Bitcoin is worth hundreds of billions of dollars because it's cryptographically verifiable history of who holds what BTC. Uh, And here he's linking to read the truth machine for a book length treatment of this concept. Um, So from what I'm getting here, Uh, The value of Bitcoin is what it is because it allows everybody who's ever interacted with it to track or see the full ledger of transactions. Um, And so there's no uh, influencing it. There's no changing it. It's there. It's on the blockchain and everybody can see literally every single transaction that has ever happened from the beginning of its inception to present day. And theoretically, that shouldn't change. And so that's very, very valuable because, uh, like we were talking about at the very beginning, with you know why is history um, uh, or how you use history to win the argument, um, it's a source of objective truth, right? But as we just went over in all these like uh, last points, it's actually not objective truth if it's being influenced by your government or by the media mm-hmm. or by press, which we'll get into. Um, whereas Bitcoin is just numbers uh, on a ledger, right? Like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. 
And everybody mm -hmm. can see that and everybody can agree on it uh, because it's um, because it's immutable. Yeah, yeah I, I guess the question today is why should we care? Uh, I don't know if you have an answer to that, but um, I, I think that's a fair question. I mean, it's great to know that there, and again, this is says, coming from someone who works in all things Web3, but um, why, <laughs> why, why are we excited? Why, why do we care that we have this crypto cryptographically verifiable history of who holds Bitcoin? So my, uh, my uh, uh, hypothesis on that is once we start seeing network states using the same technology to record their history, um, then it becomes very, very important because now it's not, oh, we as the U.S. feel ashamed of what we did in North Korea and we want to sweep it under the rug or we don't want our citizens to know about that because it makes us look bad. Um, it's there, right? And it's publicly viewable and everybody can see it. And more importantly, when it comes to negotiations at the UN, for example, if the UN has this record, right? Or everybody has it, right? But they're displaying it during these conferences. And they're like, look, guys, this is the truth. Everybody sees it. Everybody agrees on it. Nobody's changed it. Um, this is what happened from this point on, right? It, all, it would obviously have to start. Um, and, you know, it's definitely some points that I want to get into uh, next. It's actually in the next point. Um, but, uh, well, I guess we should go into that right now, right? So history well, tells you... I was you, just going to say, yeah. I was just going to say on that point, you can't you can see the uh, different editions of um, uh, UN, let's say, um, uh, facilitated treaties. You, you can actually, what, one of the things that is fun is you can see um how they changed before and after they were ratified and then also um which even you can you should be able to see even which delegation i.e which country or which representative uh suggested uh you know that the language should be toned down here or um that uh they're missing a clause there actually that's that's really interesting that you there is a there is a record of that i don't know how much that is a part of a live discussion that that actually is a really interesting point and uh yeah i just uh I guess I was, it's funny because when I hear cryptocurrency, um, what I get excited about is, yeah, you can come up with different economic models with different um, definitions of currency, like how currency should act and what it's allowed to do. But the flip side is, yeah, actually, we can also just have a verifiable ledger of, you know, what facts we're considering as a canon and the process on how that happens is also really interesting, actually. So I, I really like that, that um, angle. So I think that's a good answer. Personally, so, I think it's a good answer. I don't know, you know, maybe there's other people who are arguing against that. <laughs> no, for sure. But, but okay, so moving on to the next point, right? This is why this is so important. So history tells you who's in charge. Um, why did Orwell say that he who controls the past controls the future and that he who controls the present controls the past? Because history textbooks are written by the winners. They are authored subtly or not to tell a story of great triumph by the ruling establishment over its past enemies. The only history most people in the US know is 1776, 1865, 1945, and 1965, a potted history of revolutions, world wars, and activist movements that lead ineluctably to the sunny uplands of greater political equality. It's very similar to the history of the Soviets taught their children 
where all of the past was interpreted through the lens of class struggle, bringing Soviet citizens to the present day where they were inevitably progressing from the intermediate stage of socialism towards communism. And Chinese school children learn a similarly selective history where the real, in parentheses, wrongs of the European colonialists and Japanese are centered and those of Mao downplayed. And even any successful startup tells a founding story that sands off the rough edges. So in short, a history textbook give, gives you a hero's journey that celebrates the triumph of its establishment authors against all odds. Even when a historical treatment covers ostensible victims like Soviet textbooks covering the victimization of the proletariat, if you look carefully, the ruling class that authors that treatment typically justifies itself as the champion of those victims. This is why uh, one of the first acts of any conquering regime is to rewrite the textbooks uh, to tell you who's in charge. And so through all this, you know, it's just kind of summarizing everything that we just talked about. Uh, my follow-up questions were, you know, how will these new network states treat slash teach their history, right? Will the on-chain records make it impossible to lie? Uh, certainly, you can lie about the data, but, uh, or sorry, you can't lie about the data, uh, but you can still teach certain stories that can influence the, that data's interpretation, right? Especially for young, impressionable students. And this is something that we've seen with religion really well, right? The unchangeable data is the Bible or is the Quran or is the Torah. Uh, but the interpretation of that data, of those texts, is splintered off into you know infinite ways. Um, and so then it just goes right back to who has the most compelling hero's journey story that influences the most people in the most effective ways. And so I don't I don't know that it will change the ways that humans interact or learn. Uh, I think that's so hardwired into us from you know tens of thousands of years of history that uh, we will always be susceptible to the emotions and the inspiration of a good story. Um, we just love learning that way. Uh, but given a more advanced society with a immutable ledger of what actually happened, will that be enough to remain logical or impartial enough to be fair, right? Because that's what it comes down to during these UN talks uh, or with any diplomacy from country to country. If you don't have some verifiable form of objective truth that you guys can both agree on before you start talking about it, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. Right? You see that fighting with friends or with your partner or with anybody. Uh, if you don't share the same set of facts, right? we can't agree on the facts, the conversation isn't about uh, finding a middle ground. It's just, I feel this way and I want you to feel the same uh, or vice versa. And it doesn't really get anywhere. And we've seen how that has you know, polarized the US into the left and the right and in many other countries as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I really enjoyed that breakdown, now, Adrian. <laughs> Cheers. I think I think yeah. Um, I, I one point within that, I guess, is is what is that process of choosing? You know, what makes it as truth, or what makes it as the facts? And 
um, yeah, maybe the information you put onto the blockchain is itself immutable, but how do you choose what to put on the blockchain? Totally. Is another, is a whole other story. And, and um, who approves that process? Um, I think what I love is that this really gets us down to this question of like, what is truth? And um, is there an objective truth? I mean, the premise is if there's one immutable ledger with a process which reflects the objective of, for example, generating objective truth, uh, maybe that's a network state. Uh, uh, exactly. There. Exactly. Then, yeah. um, then suddenly uh, <laughs> you have one law, one story. It, it's very, it, I mean, the potential is really impressive and comes so close to utopian sort of thought um, processing, uh, which is interesting. But but how do you get there and, and what makes it? Um, yeah, I mean, on one side, like you said, there's this uh, emotionality that we get sucked into, um, which uh, then, I guess, um, undercuts uh, objectivity. Um, and then if that feeds into the process, then, you know, you're, you're going to be off the mark, basically, whatever you put on there. So it's, so, it's interesting to know what that, um, what are those guidelines, guideposts that um, network states might want to come up with to gear, uh, if, if again, the objective is some kind of objective truth, uh, if the goal is an objective truth, then then what's the guidepost for generating objective truth and capturing that and being, and having that approved? I, I think, so this is actually one of the questions I had as well, right? I think it's the most fascinating one because it comes down to our human nature to decide do we want to track everything? How much do we want to track? And it's kind of this privacy versus truth argument. And so, um, you know, which some people might want to opt in. That that might be exactly, a network state. Exactly. Uh, so I think ultimately it's going to come down to choice, right? You as an individual get to decide which uh, network state you want to be a part of and see how it functions. And so then the follow up to that, right, is will the data be made private in some? Will it be public in others? Uh, and then looking at what does history tell us about how mm -hmm. radical truth, honesty, right, radical transparency work at scale. The only yeah. uh, example that we have is a very small example, it's not at scale, um, but it's Bridgewater Associates, the company run by Ray Dalio, where these are like <laughs> tenants, right, of everything is monitored, everything is logged, everybody sees what everybody thinks uh, during meetings, and everybody can vote on that, right? Um, there's a, a book called Radical Honesty by uh, Dr. Brad Blanton, uh, mm -hmm. which also gives us a brief preview about what that could look like uh, on your day to day. And, you know, there's a great article in Esquire written by, um, I don't remember the author's name, but if you just Google Radical, Radical Honesty Esquire, it'll come up, uh, who read Dr. Brad, Brad Blanton's book uh, and decided to live a radically honest life, meaning just being honest about absolutely everything uh, for six mm -hmm. months. And, and explain how that affected his relationships, how it affected his work, Isn't how that, it affected um, all these different things. I think that's the premise for like two or three different Jim Carrey films at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. So, so, you know, we can see, or I think a, a lot of people would agree um, that some level of privacy is necessary. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of people would agree that um, some level of secrecy is required. Um, either if it's, you know, you're making the national security argument or you're making, you know, just the not hurting people's feelings argument. Um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, some level of those exist. 
And so I think it's going to come down to what are the founders value and what do the citizens of that network state value and how do they vote on these different issues to determine, okay, well, this level of privacy is important to us. Um, and maybe it breaks down into, you know, small segments within each network state, just like that happens in the United States with each state making their own statewide regulation, right? Um, mm. So uh, I think, yeah, ultimately it has to come down to the people and for them to decide for themselves. Yeah, I, I think opting into any sort of tracking, you have to believe that the payoff is going to be worth it also. And, and I wonder what is the promise that uh, a, a company, for example, is doing or a network state. Like once you get that to scale, what is the prop payoff that you can give to people at scale that that is interesting? You know, that that is something people would want to opt in, as you say, because I, I think you should be able to and, and you can opt in. Um, in fact, it's it feels very much like just making certain belief systems explicit, you know, like, oh, are we being watched? Is there is this is this uh, whether this is just the matrix or there's a religion and you believe in an ultimate power, you know, in both of those senses, there's there's rules to the game. You choose to play by them or not. Um, but at, a, at scale, it's like, what, what's the payoff for people who are like for the mass that would want to be opting into that? So and I'm I thinking think of. Kind of yeah, the analogy between health wearables, like an uh, Apple Watch or a Fitbit or an Aura Ring, right? That's pulling all of this biometric data about its users and logging it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I can see a world in which, and it's, it's pretty terrifying, uh, but I can see a world in which the United Nations or a equivalent organization implements these types of wearables for each country or each network state, right? That automatically reports on the health, right? And the um, other metrics, climate being one of them, uh, to determine what is true. And it's all verified on a blockchain, right? So if we're talking about sustainability as the main issue in, in the UN, right? Uh, and these countries are coming to the table saying like, well, you know, we don't want uh, to switch from gasoline just yet because, you know, we haven't had our, our uh, full use of it. And, you know, everybody else has gotten their full use of it and it allowed their countries to accelerate so much. So we want to use it more, right? Okay, cool. Where do you mathematically fall where, okay, China's carbon emissions can be X, uh, the US's can be Y, France's can be Z. Um, and we are going to track and monitor all of that with these wearables that are tied to, you know, each of your production plants or whatever ways that country already measures it. Uh, there has to be some standardized model, right? Because it can't be trusting each individual country. Otherwise, they're going to influence it whatever ways they want. Um, but that gives it this very, like, very powerful um, overall data set. Um, and it cannot be owned by a single entity because that's just way too much power in the hands of one organization, but it needs to be owned by the people in some way. Uh, and that's what we could then use to hold people accountable, right? So what are the ways that we can track? Uh, and yes, of course, there's going to be that back and forth between, well, our country doesn't believe in giving up so much information, right? But if your country is having a dramatic negative impact on the health of the, of the world, of the globe as a whole, you know, where is that middle ground? Uh, and so I see, you know, this kind of brings to mind the same realization that astronauts have time and time again, 
when they're going to space and they look back at the earth and they have this um, visceral feeling of oneness, right? Where every little uh, fight or conflict uh, that's happening on planet earth just seems so trivial when looking at this tiny little blue dot in this vast blackness of nothing, right? Um, and it just kind of puts everybody on the same team. Um, and so I think- and By the way, that that's a, it's a meditation exercise you can do also. <laughs> if you ever feel a little bit worked up, is imagine yourself uh, as that speck outside of, of the entire world and, and um, that helps you relativize. Crazy. I you don't have it. to go to space. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> right. Exactly. You don't have to go to space. And, and so we, we need to, we need to find ways to uh, promote that. Um, not, not just, not because, you know, uh, not because of like a communism or, or a communistic ideology, but just at least a baseline of human rights. Um, right. So like, mm. um, and everybody's going to fall into their own, um, sensitivities there and that's fine. Um, but ultimately if we're trying to move in a positive trajectory, if we're trying to become a multi-planetary species, if we're trying to thrive in peace and happiness for all in some way, right. Um, we need to be collaborative. Um, and it's not going to be on everything, right. Some level of isolationism is good in some ways. Um, and having diversity is good. Um, but if we don't learn to play as a team and we're not willing to share information about um, how we are contributing to the negative aspects of, uh, or the, the negative consequences to the world, uh, and we're not being honest about that and taking responsibility and owning it, then it's not going to change, right? And so ultimately what I see happening with that is there will be factions Right, which there already are. So like NATO and um, the European Union and like whatever, all these different kinds of groups of countries that come together and say, well, if you don't play by our rules, then we're going to have these sanctions on you. Right. And so you're not going to be able to take advantage of trade or you're not going to be able to take advantage of whatever it is uh, that you're benefiting from us. And if that's enough of a strong uh, pull, then that gets enough people to fall in line. But it really does come down to, you know, who has the strongest or the most influencing faction um, to bring all the players together and not in a malicious, like you're forced to do this kind of way because that brings us right back to the game theory problem of each company or each country or company being in this prisoner's dilemma. But instead of um, how do we align everybody's incentives towards the things that we all care about. Hmm. Right there, there's a lot there <laughs> that needs to be unpacked, but um, I, I think specifically on the, I guess on the section that we're looking at, which is that history tells you who's in charge, um, taking what you've done, which is going far, both in the um, theoretical and then also practically showing us you know, who plays this game and, and how we do it. I think what ultimately maybe how you would use this in your own network state is just that maybe there's a way where you would want to tell a story that says that you, the individual, 
is in charge. And, and that's something that we don't see so much, no matter what level of society you're looking at, whether it's those institutions that you mentioned who are um, leveraging their power to do whatever it is, or or your um, your own domestic politics, or even your interpersonal. Um, I don't know if that um, makes sense, but I totally it does, it, right? That's, that's the way I that's the way I see it. With the you know, if you have this opportunity of, to tell who's in charge, well, why wouldn't you just want to say you know, like you're in charge, <laughs> right? And I, I guess that's that's the step that we maybe we were allowed to do. So yeah, to 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 wrap up and put a bow on it all, um, it brings us to this. Uh, this individualism versus collect collectivism um and those trace back to again these philosophical and moral values that are taught or have been taught through thousands from the years. beginning of time right yeah exactly and so we 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 need to uh, and, and actually that's the that's the argument also for the rights when you mentioned rights but like yes. rights versus responsibility um and I, I think there's a lot of, okay, you know, let's focus on what your right is. And and this, it's my right to do this, my right to do that. But then also, I mean, it, it's literally the most, one of the more beautiful arguments made in American politics, which is the, the JFK approach, which is that, you know, ask not what what America can do for you, but what you can do for America, which I think is that idea um, in every situation is very powerful. Again, that, that rights versus responsibility, the individual versus the collective and and um knowing that you're in charge is is a form of idealism taking turning that into something uh real um is is that balance of pragmatism and and, and i think both sort of hopefully feed onto each other yeah and and we're hoping right ultimately to 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 wrap up this episode where some more points and more uh sub points in <laughs> history as trajectory and why history is crucial that we'll cover in future episodes um but we'll leave listeners with this thought, right? Uh, what is the role of collectivism or individualism for you? And ultimately, if that's what's going to determine what kinds of network states pop up and are successful, uh, what is the makeup globally of those that can work? And on that note, everyone, experiment. yeah. Uh, please like, comment, subscribe, share if you enjoyed, follow us on social, sign up for the newsletter. We got plenty of exclusive perks and fun deals in there. And we will see you next time. All see the best. You. See you next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. In the next episode, part two of why history is crucial and why it matters, we'll talk about how history determines your hiring policy, how history is how you debug our broken society, and finally conclude on why history is useful for startup societies. Mm -hmm.